Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Now radio check. Now radio check. Four hundred. Half hour is ago. 50,000 watts. Oh, that sound is beautiful. Right here. This is Bradley J. Affirmative, I read you. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. WBZ, here we go. URJ talking, we're live midnight to five. I was looking forward to meeting with you tonight, and here I am. Last night, no guest. Tonight, uh, we definitely have a guest. Peter Grinspoon, MD, who is the son, I understand, of Lester Grinspoon, who was uh, one of the premier first physicians that embraced cannabis. And uh, so Peter grew up with that and has, has had a full life on his own, a lot, lot of experiences. Thanks for being with us, first of all, Peter. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Absolutely. And you're a primary care physician at the Chelsea Healthcare Center, right? Over five, five minutes down the street. Five yeah. minutes away. And you're on staff at the Mass General Hospital. What do you do over there? I'm fascinated by Mass General. Well, I'm a primary care doctor, so I basically take care of people. Okay. And you, that's where you have your office over there? Yeah, it's um, in Chelsea. Okay. I have you know, privileges at Mass General, and I speak over there sometimes. I see. But I so, mostly take care of people at the clinic in Chelsea. So if you have to see somebody in the hospital, it would be Mass General? Yeah, no, I could round in Mass General, take care of a patient in Mass General, but I, I mostly see people in the clinic in Chelsea. And you teach over at the Harvard Medical School? Yeah, I teach classes and sometimes precept residents and medical students. What do you teach over there? Just medicine, primary care. And a little bit, I, I, I speak on cannabis sometimes too. Okay. And that's one of, well, that's the primary reason you're here. We'll talk about things related. As far as choosing it while you're here, you're a primary care physician. What do you tell folks that are uncomfortable with their primary care physician? What, what should the relationship between a patient and the primary care physician be? Well, the thing is, it's really important to have a good relationship with your primary care physician. Now, it's not entirely the primary care physician's fault these days because they're under too much pressure. You know, you've got the computer and you've got like 50 things you've got to do in about a 20-minute slot. So it's almost like mission impossible being a primary care physician these days. Don't you have some say in how many patients you see and isn't that the, the primary factor in how busy you are? Some places do and some places don't. Um, we do because, you know, at the clinic, the patients are really complicated. So we couldn't see 20 or 30 patients a day. So we certainly have some say, but I think some places don't have as much say. And I think part of it's like depends on how much money you want to make. Uh, people who work in health centers don't necessarily aren't trying to make a million dollars because that would be like the worst place to work. Um, but I think it's really important that people uh, can bring up problems and feel comfortable talking to their primary care doctor. And if they can't, they have to think carefully about whether they have the right primary care doctor because at some point there's going to be a problem that they're going to really need help with. Right. 
And say you're not thrilled with your primary care physician. What's the, the procedure for hunting down a, one that you do like? Well, I would ask around. I ask friends, ask family members. And if you um, find someone that says, yeah, I love my primary care doctor. I really like them. Then you ask if they're accepting new patients. I think that's usually the best way to find one. A lot of times it's beyond all the thing, the palpable things. It's sometimes just the chemistry. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, some people are generally a lot better at listening than others. And some people are a lot more humble than others. So there, there tend to be some primary care doctors that everybody loves. And there tend to be other ones that people tend to have problems with. So I agree that some of it's chemistry. But there are some people that everybody gets along with. And might as well address the insurance situation. How much? How much of a, a hassle is insurance for you? How much does it uh, stick its nose into taking care of people? Well, how, and how would you? Yeah, no, what would be your perfect insurance yeah, world? No, it's just a nightmare because we don't know. I'll prescribe a medication, and I will have no idea whether the insurance will pay for it. And you know, the patient won't either, and they'll have to go to the pharmacy, and it'll either get accepted or rejected. And then if it gets rejected, they'll have to call us, and then we'll fight with the insurance company, and then it still will get accepted or rejected. And it just wastes a lot of our time. It wastes a lot of the patient's time. And about you know, a certain percentage of the time, we can't even get the patient the treatment that they need. Yeah. And then there's labs, too. If you go to the doctor and the doctor orders lab tests and you go to a lab that is not in your network, you're on the hook for whatever. I, I was on the hook for 500 bucks. I said, what's this for? Oh, we're not in network. But it was in the same building. No, it's absolutely ridiculous. And it's also... You know, I would prescribe a, a cough med two cough medicines, and the pharmacy would give my patient one cough medicine and not the other. And they gave the patient the cough medicine that cost $100, and they didn't give the patient the cough medicine that cost $5. So the patient was really upset. And I didn't know what cost what because with another insurance, it would be the exact opposite yeah. of the two cough medicines. So we have very little control over that, and the patients have very little control, and it's just very upsetting all around. You know, you do your best and the patients do their best. Now you have a lifetime of experience with cannabis. Your dad, you were in the culture, and here you are a physician. And you have real problems with, well, first we were just discussing uh, the way that cannabis has been put on sale. It's just kind of a free for all. And you basically think that if it's, if it's medicine, you think of cannabis as medicine, by the way. And if it's medicine, it should come in the form of a pill or look like medicine and not candy. Yeah, I just, um, I think it should absolutely be legal, whether it's recreational or medical. But I'm concerned about the, when they make it into candies and gummy bears, because little kids and pets can't tell the difference. And, uh, you know, it's a, if you're a four-year-old kid, it's your, your job to eat the whole bag of gummy bears. And how would you know if it has cannabis in it or not. You, you wouldn't put ibuprofen in a gummy bear. Why would you put cannabis exactly. in a gummy bear? And then there's your pets. Right. A, a pet would have no idea. A pet would eat a whole chocolate bar or a and that whole can kill a pet. cookie. Well, I don't know if it could kill a pet, but it could certainly make the pet really, really, really sick. You know, the chocolate in a chocolate bar can kill a pet. I don't know if the cannabis... Right. The one thing about cannabis is it doesn't really kill people because it doesn't affect the respiratory center of your brain. So it doesn't stop you from breathing like opiates might, for example, but it can cause such a bad anxiety attack that it could make you feel like you want to die. I mean, it could be awful experience, but it doesn't technically kill you, but it could be like such a horrible experience for a kid or a pet that they shouldn't be exposed to that. What should you do, by the way, if somehow you're accidentally overdosed with, with edible cannabis? Well, if you could remind yourself that it isn't going to kill you and just go to a quiet place and, you know, hold someone's hand or just 
try to relax, that's the best thing. I mean, you know, if you start having chest pain or really having palpitations or anything, then you might have to go to emergency room. But the best thing is just to try to, you know, get into a quiet place and relax. And the best thing, if you, if you could sleep, that would be your best bet, right? Absolutely. If you could sleep, close your eyes, listen to some relaxing music, and just try to remind yourself that this is going to be over. But, but again, not for a long time. Well, that's the other thing about edibles. They last a long time. I mean, if you smoke too much, you're stuck with it for a couple hours, and then it wears off. But if you take an edible, they can last eight hours. So you're stuck with the the uncomfortable experience for about eight hours, and that's pretty miserable. Before we get to the CBD, do you have any other issues with cannabis uh, and the, the model that we now have, it's good that it's good that it's legal because it was ridiculous to spend the time and energy to lock people up or hassle them for cannabis. But is this the ideal model for you, the way it's set up with these dispensaries and them doling out these licenses? Well, I think Massachusetts is actually doing a, a really good job. And uh, it's not perfect. You know, we still have somewhat of a, a black market. And I think it's too expensive. I think for medical uh, cannabis, it should be covered by health insurance. A lot of people just can't afford it, like CBD and cannabis. It helps them, but they, they can't afford it. So you have these people that, for example, I've gotten off opiates or benzodiazepines, and then they can't afford the medical cannabis. And they're like, well, my copay for an opiate is $3, right. and it cost me $60 to get enough cannabis, so I'll just go back on the oxycodone. And that's a ridiculous situation, given how much safer the cannabis is. So I think that we need um, to address the funding of the cannabis. And the incentives are for people to use opiates and benzodiazepines and all these other medications that are a lot more dangerous than the cannabis. So I think we do have some work to do. Have you noticed how crowded these dispensaries are now that it's recreational? <clears throat> is Has there always been this demand, or do you think, is your sense that there's this uh, rush to do it because it's fun and new and legal people are smoking now that wouldn't have before and not that it matters I'm, I'm curious well the people who are really adopting it um like crazy are the baby boomers because what else are they going to use for chronic pain they can't use nobody wants to be in opiates the non-steroidals will eat away your kidneys and give you an ulcer and tylenol doesn't do anything and they're finding that cannabis is a safe and effective treatment for chronic pain so they're you know people are getting older a little bit more rotund and arthritic, and um, they're embracing it like crazy for chronic pain very successfully. So that's who's really embracing it. That's why your dispensaries are crowded. You go in, and most of the people have gray hair. Do doctors actually prescribe cannabis? And when you prescribe, of course, you prescribe on a dose. If Do you? You don't just say to them, smoke a little of this, do you? Or do, you do you give them right. well, a capsule yeah. with... It's a little 10 bit 10 milligrams of THC. Yeah, that's a little bit different. And some doctors have a hard time with this because doctors tend to be sort of control freaks. And for like blood pressure or cholesterol, I'll give you 10 milligrams of Lipitor or 25 milligrams of a tor, you know, of Atenolol. But for cannabis, I certify you and then you sort of do trial and error and try to figure out what your dose is. So it's much more about patient empowerment and trial and error. Um, but I give suggestions, you know, I'll suggest maybe you try a tincture at a very low dose of CBD slash THC tincture under your tongue. Yeah. Under your tongue. Start with one drop of each. Start with one drop. So there's one milligram of each. Exactly. And then, or, or maybe like four milligrams of each just under your tongue. And then then after a couple nights, try two drops. You know, if you're going to make a mistake on the dose, do too little and have it not do anything. Don't do too much. And if you start off very slowly and very conservatively, our mantra is start low and go slow. You can't really get in trouble with that. Oh, and in addition, if you do two drops, say, and it doesn't do anything, wait till tomorrow to exactly. do You don't add two more. Right, you wait till tomorrow. And as long as people aren't overenthusiastic, overzealous, they won't get into trouble if they just go slow, start low and go slow. It's just people are so excited about it because they're like, oh, I used to love this when I was 
in the 60s and then they overdo it, then they can get into trouble. But as long as you convince them to stay away from the edibles, maybe use the drops or take one puff. Don't smoke a joint like they used to do back in the day because it's a lot stronger now. Take a puff or use a drop and then the next night maybe try two and go really slowly and just be moderate about it. Uh, they, they don't get My patients don't get into trouble with it. Do you have a recommendation for the type, the strain? Do you get that specific? Well, different, I don't, different I don't strain that, for different stuff. Yeah, I don't get that specific. It used to be indica versus sativa, but there's been so much crossbreeding over the last 30 years that um, most of the strains in reality are hybrids of indica and sativa. And, you know, the strains aren't really that well defined. I mean, you know, sour diesel in California isn't the same as sour diesel in Boston. Oh. The genetics aren't that well defined. So, um, you know, I mostly tell people to find something that works for them and keep a journal and, again, start low and go slow. And if they find something that works, stick with it. One thing you can do if you go to a dispensary is buy, at least at one dispensary I'm aware of, like one gra- like a very small amount for 15 bucks. And you can get a whole potpourri of different right, and try them. strains and see what works for you. Right, exactly. And, and journal. You write down what it is. So you don't, right. it doesn't help if you find something that works and don't remember what it is because you're too stoned right. to remember what it is. So we tell people to write it down. Right. And, okay, moving on to CBD. Well, you know, let's start from the, the basics. We've, we've, gone, we've done the basics before, but it's always good to do them again. CBD is an on-psychoactive substance in that in the hemp plant go ahead and give the speech sure well technically they it is psychoactive it's not intoxicating oh. and there's no abuse liability and you can't get high off of it but it is psychoactive because it helps with anxiety and insomnia All right. so if you want to split hairs or um i love splitting hairs. split leaves split leaf. um and hemp and cannabis are essentially the same plant except the difference is how much thc they have so hemp by definition has less than 0.3% THC, which is the chemical that gets you high. Okay. And cannabis has more than 0.3% THC. Good to know. So you have these two plants. They look the same. Well, they look pretty Very much similar, the same. Yeah. And that one just has been bred to have all kinds of THC, and that one has not. Right, exactly. Or very little, yeah. And you take the one that has not, you have to take the one that has not and grind that up to make CBD. Otherwise, it'll come out to have too much THC in it. Right, or you could just take marijuana and extract the, the CBD from the marijuana. Is the CBD that comes from a hemp plant, a low THC plant, better or worse than CBD that comes from a high THC plant but has had the THC extracted? I, I think the same thing. It's the same molecule. Okay. And they all have the, they both know. have the minor, the terpenes and the all the other molecules that, that people... Doesn't matter. Take. Yeah. I what are some it, of the methods for extraction? Um, people use, uh, fermentation. Um, I think fermentation is one of the major uh, ways to extract it. Uh, you can make CBD just in the lab. You can make pure distillate of CBD. Um, without, you mean completely synthetically? Yes. Synthetically. Without the plant. Exactly. You can make it without the plant. Do people sell that? Um, I think you can get it from the laboratory. Like from China, you can get pure CBD powder, uh, from just the laboratory. I wouldn't um, trust it from China, would you? No. <laughs> so, but you could ferment it. I bet there's it. some people over M- MIT making it. Uh, probably. Some kids in, uh, I'll in bet the back. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know it's probably pretty expensive to make. But you could ferment it. And there are a bunch of other um, ways to do it. You could do it with alcohol. And um, you could do it with temperature. You know, just like, um, I think any, any way you can extract one chemical from another, you could really get CBD out of it. 
Uh, the question is, what's cost effective um, for, for to make CBD for uh, you know for uh, commercial purposes? And I guess natural versus, I guess some extraction methods leave resi- residue of whatever toxins were used, right? Butane or whatever. Sometimes they're industrial solvents, and you know that sort of defeats the purpose. I mean, people tout CBD as being natural and as being anti-inflammatory and so forth, and if you're, um, you know, coating it with um, some kind of industrial solvent, that sort of defeats the purpose. So does it work? Or really, does it really, really work? How much of it is psychosomatic? Maybe it doesn't matter, but it would be nice to know that there was some actual, you take the substance, it does this to this, and you feel differently because of this in a repeatable scientific way. Well, the enthusiasm for CBD has certainly outstripped the scientific um, proof of its efficacy. However, there is... There's definitely some evidence for it working for childhood seizures. They wouldn't have gotten that drug Apulidex approved if there wasn't good evidence for that. And um, there's a lot of animal studies showing that it works for insomnia, for anxiety, for chronic pain, and really intriguing um, data showing that it helps with psychosis and with addiction. And more and more, there's human studies, but we're not quite there yet. Um, We're sort of in the twilight zone between animal studies and human studies are just starting to come online. So we have a lot of anecdotal studies. People swear by it. Yeah, that's the thing. And we have animal studies, but we just don't quite have the, the human studies. And the reason we don't have the human studies is because CBD has been caught under the, the government's web. You know, it's marijuana-related, so let's lock it up under the Controlled Substance Act. Like, it's a really dangerous chemical, so it's been very difficult to study. Um, now that hemp is legal, they're making it a little bit easier to study. And they're certainly studying it in all these other countries like Israel, Canada, and Europe, where uh, they don't, they're not so paranoid about marijuana. Um, so we're going to have more studies. Each year, more studies are coming out. Um, a really interesting human study came out um, about uh, heroin craving and people that were in recovery from heroin addiction. They were given CBD, and they had many fewer cravings in response to you know, pictures of uh, drug paraphernalia. So human studies are coming out. I think it's going to be really interesting with addiction because there was a study. There are actually two more studies I want to talk about. One is with, with addiction... Um, they gave it to cigarette smokers, and one oral dose of CBD um, led people to smoke fewer cigarettes uh, for something like a 72-hour period. So I think CBD is going to have a role. This is in humans um, in helping people uh, quit smoking. Uh, again, this is very preliminary. Um, and you know, the other studies they did, which were not human studies but were with animals, um, really helped cravings with uh, methamphetamine and with cocaine and um, with a variety of other substances and with cannabis addiction as well, it seemed very interesting uh, with the CBD. And then one other human study for CBD is with, um, and they use this as a surrogate for anxiety because everybody thinks it helps them with anxiety, uh, but they haven't done a lot of great human studies, but they did it for public speaking and people took one dose of CBD before public speaking and it was measurable. The effect on public speaking was the same as as if they took a Valium uh, before public speaking. Still it could have been psychosomatic, right? Could well, have been placebo but effect. it was a placebo study. They didn't know what they were taking, and they had measurable uh, decrease in anxiety before public speaking. This was a placebo study. So the people who got the placebo still had the anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And the CBD worked. It was a really good study. So okay. um, this is so as, as I'm saying, the um, the evidence is starting slowly to accumulate for CBD. So it, it's becoming less of a placebo and more of a established fact that it works. So why does it work? And uh, let me. Make my question more specific. <laughs> you take a substance, it goes in there into your body, and it goes somewhere and does something. What is the actual action of this 
CBD. Well, CBD is really complicated, and I don't think they entirely know how it acts. Um, there's like eight different proposed mechanisms of how CBD acts. As, as we talked about briefly before the show, THC, cannabis, works on the cannabinoid receptors. You know, there are receptors that marijuana acts on that affect a certain, is very well, very well mapped out how it works. But CBD is a little bit more nebulous. It just, they don't know exactly how it works. So I can't answer that because I don't think anybody can answer that. Okay. Why do we have Cannabinoid receptors, whatever you call those receptors, I forget. Cannabinoid, yeah. Cannabinoid receptors. Yeah. Why? Uh, well, why, you know, we have. Why do we have an appendix? I guess because we used to eat accidentally eat rocks and they got trapped in there, and that was a good thing, something like that. There's got to be some reason, well, evolutionarily, that that exists. Well, that gets philosophical. I mean, uh, when I studied, I studied philosophy in college, and um, you know, it, it, some people say that. Evolution isn't always for a purpose. Sometimes think people things just evolve, and it's not necessarily for a purpose. Like that, that's sort of a myth. But if you go with the assumption that people that things evolve for a reason, right. natural selection. Do, what, do you? Which do you subscribe to? Uh, well, I think most things have to evolve for a reason. Right. Not everything. Um, I think humans and the cannabis plant have been sort of co-evolving for hundreds of thousands of years. I think it's been a very helpful plant. I think. Um, it's only been in the last 75 years that it's been illegal. I think humans have used it for, like, since the beginning of human history. Uh, they've used it medicinally. They've used it culturally. They've used it spiritually. I think it's just, you know, it, it, it has anti-inflammatory proper properties. It has, um, it's been used in, in many, 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 if not all human cultures. And I think that it has a, a very long history uh, with humans. And I think there's been some, possibly some co-evolution. And that would sort of explain why they're the receptors. I think. That's kind of where I was going. Yeah. In other words, it's only been a very short period of time in the span of human development that cannabis has not been part of humans' lives. Right. Well, not been legally sanctioned part of humans' lives. Right. It's always been part of human life. So do, do you happen to know what happened 75 years ago whenever they decided it was awful well, yeah. for you? Why, why was that? Well, it was a combination of, of flat-out racism with uh, Harry Anslinger, uh, who was head of the uh, Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was the early sort of DEA. And, you know, he really wanted to um, uh, associate it with um, uh, Mexican uh, migrant workers and African-American musicians. That, of course, segued into Richard Nixon, uh, whose uh, chief of staff, Ehrlichman, uh, flat out admitted that they wanted to link it with the anti-war left and the Black Panthers so they could arrest the leaders. He even admitted that they were lying about the drugs, but that they wanted to use it politically. So part of it was political, part of it was racism, but a, a big part of the history of cannabis prohibition is competing commercial interests. And that's still going on today. I mean, it was competition for paper and silk. They didn't want hemp to compete with that. Um, but today, if you look at who contributes to the uh, referendums, whenever there's a referendum, whether or not to legalize medical or re recreational cannabis, um, four of the biggest contributors against legalizing it are the private prison industry, big pharma, the rehab industry, and the alcohol industry. Those are the four biggest um, industries that suffer when you legalize medical cannabis or recreational cannabis. So it's just very hypocritical that you have the alcohol industry funding these ads. You know, you take a puff and your legs fall off when in reality cannabis is so much safer than alcohol. And then it's just, you know, to me it's just sick that you have the private prison industry advertising surreptitiously about how dangerous cannabis is and they shouldn't which is they want it illegal so they can have more inmates and make more money exactly we shouldn't even have a private prison industry let alone one that could advertise and make um, something like this illegal so you could ruin more people's lives I think that's very unethical
You are a great guest. We back to more on CBD. It's a ripoff. <laughs> it's uh, overpriced. Uh, overpriced, I should say. Yeah, I don't mean it's the, uh, the main side fake. effect is your pocketbook. Right. I remember when I first came across it, maybe a year and a half ago. Yeah, a year and a half ago, I was up in New Hampshire. I was like, well, look at this. There's people are selling this stuff, and a bottle of ninety capsules was 90 bucks. Each capsule was 20 milligrams. So you're down to, I think it's like a buck 80 for a 20 milligram capsule. And that's a great deal. I, I probably did the math wrong. I do, I do know that it was a great deal. And now you can't touch it for that. That's why I say we're getting ripped off. It's not that the pro products are not, don't work, it's that we're getting fleeced. Would you agree? Well, it is amazing how expensive it is. And, um, you know, CBD is just one of 100 different cannabinoids in cannabis. You wonder why it's so much more expensive than cannabis. It's just one part of cannabis. Yeah, it's more expensive than actual marijuana. Like, and it's just one component of marijuana. Yeah. Why? Demand? I think it's demand, but there's so many companies making CBD, and there's so much competition. You'd expect, like, basic capitalism, like, Law of supply and demand, you'd expect the price to go down, but it just hasn't been happening Maybe yet. Maybe the demand is just so whopping that the supply can't keep up. Yeah, the, it's really out of control. I mean, you read about uh, burgers with CBD in them and ice cream with CBD in it, and I heard that's about a, pillow, a pillowcase that emits CBD is what I heard about the so other day. So that's crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> Who needs a pillowcase that emits CBD? I think um, I'm not sure that would help your so, sleep that much. So, folks, if you decide to try it, just a warning. Go online and do a lot of pricing. And that way you'll know if you go to some place and it's 70 bucks for one. I don't know. You'll know that you're getting ripped off. There were some places I was shocked. And I had to say, this is completely overpriced. Well, and there's another issue, which is it's not really regulated. So you want to get it from a place that has an independent lab tested uh, and has a certificate of, of assurance of quality because, um, you know, the FDA did some random testing and some 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 of the products didn't have any CBD and some didn't have the amount that they were advertising. And some of them even had THC. And I'm not against THC, I'm a medical cannabis provider, but to have THC when you're not expecting, it's a disaster if you're gonna drive right. home. So you- Or really, if you get tested. Well, if you get tested for work, exactly. So you wanna um, make sure, Con Consumer Reports has a really good article, how to shop for CBD. And it talks about just what I talked about, about um, uh, making sure that there's independent third-party laboratory testing so that you know you're actually getting the right amount of CBD. Yeah, and don't you have to get the test results? Because do you trust them to say, "Oh, we tested it"? I don't trust them. Well, it's a question of how um, you know. At some point, you've got to take a leap of faith. I mean, they could, they could fabricate anything online these days, right? You can make anything look real. But I think if it's a pretty reputable website and they have what looks like a reputable lab and other people use it, I you know, I think if and if you follow something like Consumer Reports, which is a nonprofit, you can get a pretty good idea. Sure, you could be fooled, but I think. To do some due diligence is better than doing no due diligence. I've gotten some cold-pressed from a boutique maker that actually came with a copy of the printout of the lab work in it. Right. That's as good as you can do. I mean, that's you can't do much better than that. Also, isn't that one of the benefits of the dispensaries, even though they are too expensive, if you can hear me, dispensaries, <laughs> too expensive, plus you have to pay this tax, 20%, unless you have a card. One of the benefits of the dispensary is that they do 
ab- absolutely do the lab work. And they do, don't they have a little sticker on the side that tells you? Oh, yeah, absolutely everything that they've tested for, what's in it, what's not in it. If you buy cannabis, all the different cannabinoids that are in it. And I've toured the labs. The labs are amazing. They're really high tech. Uh, so yeah, they, they do a great job. Again, I like that, the science-y part. I, it's almost worth paying the extra so you know you're looking at the lab work. And you know. Now, what about THCA? THCA, if you heat it, it becomes, excuse me, uh, what about CBDA? Well, that's just um, CBD, uh, cannabidiol acid. Yeah, that's just, it's not uh, metabolically active yet. You have to decarboxylate it. But there are some folks that say that that CBDA also is effective. Right. People say that that's effective for like anti-inflammatory and... People make all kinds of claims. I think even less is known about CBDA than is known about CBD. Okay. Plain old CBD, okay. yeah. I mean, I think it is, um, there, have, there is some data that it is anti-anxiety, and there is some data that is anti-inflammatory, but I don't think it's as well characterized as CBD itself. And what about this rumor that a hint of THC is a booster to your CBD? Absolutely. For pain um, and for anxiety, absolutely. See. A little bit supercharges the CBD effect? Yeah, they work synergistically, and I think that they work much better together, I think. So the whole is greater than some of the parts? Absolutely, and that's what's... People say that whole plant um, cannabis works better than just the THC and the CBD. There are like hundreds of different chemicals, and it's called the entourage effect, and it's why they've tried to isolate THC. They had a medication called Marinol, which the government made as a way to sort of get the legalization advocates off their back. They said, okay, well, here's THC. We'll make this a molecule. But Marinol didn't work nearly as well as marijuana does because it was just the one molecule, not the 600 major and minor molecules. So cannabis slash marijuana works much better than just the THC or just the CBD. They work synergistically together because there are a lot of major and minor molecules like terpenes and phytocannabinoids that work together uh, synergistically. I mean, that's part of why there are different strains and different effects. Some okay. make you energized, some make you sleepy. Next level question is, any truth to the rumor that THCA, a relatively non-psychoactive THC, boosts CBD? So you could take a drop of THCA and a drop of CBD and not get th- regular THC. Have you heard this? Um, I don't think THCA boosts CBD. Okay. I think CBD can increase your uh, serum levels of THC, but also THC and CBD can antagonize each other, so you don't get as high. Like, they think CBD is an antidote if you've taken too much THC really? and you're too high. You could take CBD and become less high. That's one of the rescue techniques. If you've taken too much of an edible, for example, you take some CBD, and that brings you down. So even though that's the case... A little bit of THC does supercharge your CBD. Yeah. Huh. They work, um, they boost each other in terms of uh, medical effect, but in terms of psychoactivity, oh, okay. they antagonize each other. Let's take one more break and have one more segment with our excellent guest, Peter Grinspoon, MD on WBZ. Jay talking, Bradley J. Hey, Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you want to talk? About what? I'm talking about my life. I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. Do you understand? Okay, talk. Jay Talking with Bradley J. WBZ. News Radio 1030. More with Peter Grinspoon, MD. You wrote a book, Peter. Tell me about it. Well, my book is called Free Refills, A Doctor Confronts His Addiction. It's called Free Refills because doctors have unlimited access to prescription medications. And if you uh, combine the access to medications with the stress that doctors are under, it's a perfect storm for addiction in the medical community. And uh, we have very high rates of addiction to drugs and alcohol. And there's actually a sector of the medical society, if you will, that, that deals with that. And you're a member. Yes. Well, I was, first of all, a uh, client of them when I uh, had the state police and the DEA raid my office in 2005 because of some bad prescriptions that I wrote, which is how my memoir begins. That must be a bad, must have been a bad day. Yeah, that was not that much fun. It really was not fun. And then, um, you know, I uh, got my, cleaned up my act. It took a long time. It took about five years. I was out of medicine for three years. And then um, they actually invited me to be an associate director for them and to help other physicians. So from 2013 to 2015, I was an associate director of the Physician Health Service, sitting at the exact same table but on the other side, helping other physicians who are struggling with addiction and alcoholism. Um, you know, from using my experience um, with overcoming addiction to help them overcome theirs. So it was a really interesting experience having come full circle. Can you walk us through the, that period of time from when you first started contemplating, oh, man, I'm addicted and I'm going to write myself as a prescription to the ramp up to the day the police showed up. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I had always experimented with a lot of drugs, and I was always like a thrill seeker, and it, it never, uh, I never got into trouble with anything. Um, but then the first time I tried op um, Vicodin, which is an opiate, when I was in medical school, it just caused this like intense euphoria, like, like nothing I'd ever experienced before. And I think it's really dependent on your brain because you know I met people in physician support group meetings that have said I had my first drink at age 14 and I never stopped drinking since that point. And, you know, for me, alcohol doesn't do anything. I just find it really boring. But other people, when they had their first drink, they never stopped drinking. For me, other drugs didn't. I didn't have any problems with. But the first time I did an opiate, like, I just became so euphoric. And some people, for some people, Vicodin is not that big a deal? Yeah, exactly. I, a woman at a book talk I gave said, I had Vicodin after my C-section. It didn't make me euphoric. How could you get addicted to that? I didn't even like it. And so I think people's brains are just different. We have different susceptibilities. But, again, doctors have a lot of stress. So they're, like, particularly susceptible to all this stuff. But um, I just spent like the next 10 years like seeking out um, opiates and, you know, started out with like me just like taking a pill here and there. And like all addictions, it really escalated. And then it became a disaster when I got a prescription pad and I started sneaking around and writing bad prescriptions. And eventually the pharmacist um, at CVS realized that I wasn't an 18-year-old uh, nanny from New Zealand uh, named Gemma. And uh, she called the police. And then within two weeks, the state police and the DEA were in my office. I was very angry at her, but now, you know, in retrospect, she saved my life, and I couldn't be more grateful. As an aside, is there such a person? Yes, <laughs> there is. Because that would have been something if you made that up out of um, 
No, no, no. There is. I, Clear I, blue sky. I literally should have gotten a leading role in the um, in the show America's Dumbest, Dumbest Criminal. I mean, my my scheme was so ridiculous. But what I did get was the state police and the DEA in my office. And the pharmacist called the police. Yeah, the pharmacist called the police, which she should have done. Right. I mean, I was out of control completely. It was and, my addicted brain thinking. You think you when you're addicted, you lose all perspective, and all you care about is like not being sick and getting your next fix. And I was totally doing that with a prescri- prescription pad. And I was breaking laws left and right. And when the police showed up, of course, it was a surprise. Knock, knock, knock. Yeah, it was a major in. surprise. And I, I was getting, I got into BS mode, which is sort of my modus operandi. And I was going on and on and on. And they're like, Doc, cut the crap. We know you're writing bad prescriptions. And that sort of uh, popped my balloon right there. And he said, all right. Yeah, they didn't arrest me, but they made me come the next day for uh, fingerprints. Oh, so they didn't make you do the perp walk? No, they didn't, because I was in front of, like, all the other doctors and my patients. It was in the Faulkner Hospital. Like, it was, like, in front of, like, hundreds of people. Like, they, you know, they they treated me with, like, a certain amount of respect. Um, But they definitely, there were three felony charges, and I was on, like, probation for two years. And they were like major charges, but they didn't, they literally didn't, they didn't arrest me, but they were, they filed criminal charges and I had to get fingerprinted the next day and show up in court the next day after that. How, how much of a deal was that whole court thing? Oh my God. It was like a major deal. Cause I was in the middle of it, like the, the most thermonuclear divorce at the same time. And you know, it just all got mixed together between, uh, my ex-wife who was on a rampage, um, the, my probation officer who was clinically paranoid, the medical board who wanted to like, uh, crucify me. Um, it just, uh, everything spiraled, spiraled out of control at the same time. It was like a nightmare. So how did you manage to come out all rosy and have them want you to be in charge of their very organization? Well, it, um, it involved a lot of uh, humility and a lot of growth and change. And believe me, that didn't happen all at once. I was kicking and screaming, uh, for a long time, but you know, I went to rehab for 90 days, uh, which was sort of a nightmare. I'm not a huge fan of rehab and, I was drug tested for a period of five years. I calculated it was 20 gallons of urine that they took. Um, and they, uh, they just followed me. They have a really strict contract, the physician health services, kind of like they have with pilots too. And it's, it's very high success rate, but it's a very rigorous contract. And they use a lot of leverage. They basically said, if you don't get your act together, like immediately, you're not going to ever be a doctor again. And, you know, you put so much of your heart and soul, so much of your savings and so much so many sleepless nights into becoming a doctor there was just like no way that i was going to not be a doctor again i really wanted to be a doctor so when it came down to it even though it's kind of painful being a doctor i, I really wanted to be a doctor so uh i just found a way i dug deep inside and found a way to get over it well what's the big lesson for everybody out there the big lesson is if someone you know and love is addicted don't give up on them because i think the fact that nobody gave up on me is why i ultimately came through it's hard not everybody is like you a lot of folks I hear about in the audience, they don't give up and they don't give up and they don't give up and they don't ever, things never get better. I know. At some it, point, don't you have to give up? Well, if you, if you do give up, things won't get better. And if you don't give up on people, there's a chance that things will get better. So I just don't believe in giving up on people. Good for you. Now, how about the future? Are you good? Are you going to continue to do this? Are you going to write another book? What? Any, oh, anything? definitely write another book. I am a What's writer that? trapped in a doctor's body. What are you going to write about? Well, uh, I'm writing a, a book of fiction. Um, That's hard. Yeah, it's dialogue. Way I think way hard. harder than anything else I've ever dialogue done. Dialogue that sounds natural is very difficult. Yeah, I'm trying to make it serious, but it's coming out to be a comedy, so um, which is a lot of fun. And I'm also going to write a book on. Um, I'm writing a book on cannabis, um, which will be interesting. 
and um, I also want to write a book on um, addiction. So a bunch of books I'm writing. When do you find the time? Uh, I don't get much sleep. You're a busy person. You're a, you're a late night person. I'm a late night person and an early morning person. All right. So thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having I me. I really appreciate it. It's been fun. It's been great. And thanks to your lovely wife, wi- wife Liz, for coming in as well. Yep, if you have any questions about data science, she's, she's right a data here. Data scientist. <laughs> we'll we'll work something out. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky. Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.